Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. And I'll be reading from the ESV. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God, God with us. This is the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. I'm going to give you full disclosure. I realize that my voice sounds strained. So I'm aware of that. I've got uh, some cough drops and some water. And uh, Lord willing, we're going to make it through. But I'm going to ask you a question that I want you to answer in your head. Don't shout out your answer. Just, just answer this question in your head. Is it appropriate to refer to Mary, the mother of Jesus, as Mary, the mother of God? Is it appropriate to refer to Mary, the mother of Jesus, as Mary, the mother of God? This, this question was the point of contention discussed at the Council of Ephesus in 431. Now, at issue was the use of the Greek word theotokos, or God-bearer, in reference to Mary. There was a bishop or a pastor over pastors in a city. There was a bishop named Nestorius, and Nestorius said, we, my party, we are comfortable with saying Mary the mother of Christ. But we are not comfortable with the phrase Mary the mother of God or Theotokos because that elevates Mary, making her the originator of God. Another bishop named Cyril, who was uh, president of that council, he led the side that landed on the use of the word God-bearer. And Cyril pressed the question, who is Jesus? Because if Jesus is more than a man, if he is God, then although Mary did not generate God, though she is not the, because she is not the origin of divine nature, the fact that she is the mother of Christ, who is God, therefore means that she is the mother of God. To the members of the council, the phrase God-bearer or mother of God 
was more of a statement about who Jesus is than about who Mary was. And come to find out, Nestorius was not only against the phrase Mary, the mother of God, because of his concerns about what it said about Mary, but he actually had some really funky views of Christ and did not want to affirm the full deity of Christ. And so the council convened. They affirmed Christ's nature by saying Theotokos, God-bearer, mother of God, was in fact uh, appropriate to say about Mary because of who Jesus is. And they likewise declared Nestorius a heretic and his views error. So what has the church Catholic, lowercase c, the whole church, historically believed about who Jesus is? That's what we're going to look at today as we continue in our series, We Believe the Beliefs That Make Us Christian. Now, we've already looked so far at several important doctrines. We've looked at the Bible, what we believe about the Bible, and our summary statement was, we believe in the Holy Bible, the inspired, inerrant Word of God, composed of the books of the Old and New Testament, the only certain rule of saving faith and practice. We've talked about who God is and the doctrine of the Trinity and said we believe in the blessed Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, one God in three persons, their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. We've talked about what we believe about creation and the fall and said we believe God spoke and made all things from nothing, things seen and unseen, including mankind, both male and female, whom he made in his image in a state of innocence, though fallen through sin, on account of which the human race is under God's wrath. Well, today we're going to look specifically at this question of who Jesus is, and here's our statement regarding the person of Jesus Christ. We believe in Jesus Christ, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin, fully God and fully man, who lived a blameless life, fully pleasing to God, and became the perfect substitute for sinful humanity. So now here's what that means. It means that Jesus is the Christ, which means anointed one and is interchangeable with the word Messiah. He is the anointed one, the Messiah promised all throughout the Old Testament. It also means that as the pre-existent Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, so never created, he is fully divine, fully God. And because he was born of Mary, he is fully man or fully human. Rather than having a DNA from a human mother and a DNA from a human father, the Holy Spirit caused Mary to become pregnant with Jesus. We believe that means that Jesus never disobeyed God during his earthly life. And it also means that Jesus perfectly obey God during his life on earth. And as God and man, human and divine, completely righteous and free of sin, Jesus was the perfect offering to ransom sinners or pay their debt. 
Now, throughout church history, there has almost always been a struggle over one aspect or another of the nature of Christ being the God-man. So a couple groups, there was the uh, Doceticism and Monophysticism. They said Jesus was simply God. So they affirmed his, his deity, his divinity, but they downplayed his humanity. They said he's not really human. He's only the form of a human. He's only like temporarily dwelling within a human or it's just all a sham. It's, it's like just an image. There was also Arianism and Ebionism, which said that Jesus is simply a creature. He may, be an, he may be an angelic creature. He may be more than a man, but he's not actually God. He's not fully divine. And then there was Nestorianism, Apollinarianism, and Monolithism that said Jesus was part man and he was part God. He had some qualities of both, but he was not fully man, and he was not fully God. And so the reason behind creeds, like the Nicene Creed or the Athanasian Creed, was to clarify what Christians believe is true according to the Scriptures. So the Nicene Creed opens by saying, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. And then it follows with a longer emphasis on who Christ is, saying, And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. So affirming his complete deity and then saying, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate or made flesh by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man, affirming his humanity. So 300 bishops, pastors of pastors, came to the Council of Nicaea. They affirmed that Jesus is fully God with no beginning to his deity or divinity. He's exactly like God the Father with regard to his divinity. And he's fully man, born of a woman through the power of the Holy Spirit. So he's exactly like his mother with regard to his humanity. This also shows up in... in uh, the words of various church fathers throughout, throughout church history. Uh, I've already mentioned Cyril, who is the president of that, that council, Council of Ephesus. This is the early 400s. Cyril says, <clears throat> while visible as a babe <clears throat> in swaddling cloths, and yet in the bosom of the virgin who bare him, he was filling all creation as God and was enthroned in him who begot him. So we have Jesus away in a manger and yet not confined to a human body because he's fully God, his divinity overflowing. We have John Damascus of Damascus in the early 700s says, if she who gave birth is mother of God, 
then he who was born of her is definitely God and also definitely man. And then Augustine of Hippo, this is around the late 300s, possibly early 400s, writes, he was created of a mother whom he created. He was carried by hands that he formed. He cried in the manger in wordless empathy. He, the word, without whom all human eloquence is mute. Again, this common understanding throughout the, the church that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. So throughout church history, we see an affirmation in the belief of the person of Jesus Christ as the eternal Son of God, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, fully God, <clears throat> God, fully man, one person with two natures, united in one person, but not mixed. The perfect Savior of mankind. That's what we believe as Christians about Jesus. So why do we believe it? And you might be surprised. But it's because the Bible tells us so. The Bible tells us so. So what does the Bible exactly say? Well, beginning with our reading before the sermon today, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 23, we see these four things affirmed in that text that Margaret read. First, we're told that Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So it was not a natural pregnancy uh, by by human standards. Number two, we're told that the angel of the Lord confirmed that Mary's pregnancy was by the Holy Spirit. So we have a witness to the, the miraculous nature of her pregnancy. Number three, Matthew writes that all of this was to fulfill the prophecy that a virgin would conceive and give birth to a son. And in addition to that, the name given to him along with Jesus, is Emmanuel, which means God with us and shows that this human child from God is God. In chapter 1 of Luke's gospel, we see the visitation of the angel Gabriel announcing to Mary that she is to give birth to the Christ. And in verse 35, he says, or it says, Luke writes, And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called the Son of God. So again here, both in Matthew and in Luke, we see a virgin mother made pregnant by the Holy Spirit, giving birth to a child who is the Son of God, who is both fully God and fully man. In Luke 4, after Jesus starts his earthly ministry at the age of 30, we see Jesus healing the sick and casting out demons. And in verse 41 of Luke 4, we're told that the demons come out and cry out, you are the son of God. But he, that's Jesus, rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. In Matthew 16, Jesus asks his disciples who people think that he is. Some 
gave the answer, well, they think you're, you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. And, and others answered, well, they think you're Elijah or one of the, the prophets of old. But Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And verse 16 and 17, it says, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So going back to Luke chapter 4, we see the demons acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. And then going to Matthew chapter 16, we see that, or yes, the disciples affirm Jesus' divinity, that he is the same essence as the Father. Jesus' detractors did not believe that what he said was true, but they fully understood what Jesus claimed to be true about himself. In John chapter 5, verse 18, we're told this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, which he wasn't really, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus claimed to be God. The demons identified him as God. His detractors understood his claims to be God. His disciples believed that he was God. And the scriptures are unmistakable that Jesus is the Son of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him, that's in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and upholds the universe by the word of his power. You see, when the Son of God became man, he did not cease to be God. He did not cease to sustain all things by the word of his power. He did not cease to hold all things together in him. He did not cease to be omnipotent, to be omniscient, or to be omnipresent. And so that means that Jesus, the Son of God, fully man, as an infant in the manger, still was all-knowing in his deity. He was still all present in his deity and he was still all powerful in his deity. He did not give up anything of his deity in becoming man. He only added humanity to his divinity. We must never, no, never, not ever think of Jesus Christ as being anything less ever than fully God. But the scriptures also demand us to affirm and confess that Jesus is fully and truly man. In John chapter 4, we're told that Jesus and his disciples were traveling. And Jesus was wearied, verse 6, wearied from his journey. And so his disciples went into town to find something to eat. And while Jesus was sitting there by a well, a woman came out, a Samaritan woman, 
And this is the story of Jesus and the woman at the well. Why did that whole event take place? Unless Jesus is a liar and he's pretending to be something that he wasn't, the scripture says that whole encounter happened because Jesus was tired. In Matthew chapter 8, we're told that Jesus and his 12 disciples, they're in a boat and a storm comes up and the disciples begin to panic and they think that they're going to sink and they're going to die. But why wasn't Jesus panicking? Or why wasn't Jesus calming them down? Because Jesus was tired and Jesus was asleep. Because he was fully man in his humanity, the Son of God was subject to weakness and limitations and grew tired and needed sleep. In Matthew 21, we're told that Jesus uh, curses a fig tree outside of the city of Jerusalem. This is, this is the last week of his life. What we refer to as Passion Week. And most commentators understand that when Jesus approaches this fig tree and he sees that it has no fruit and he curses it, it's a foreshadowing of the fact that Jesus went to Jerusalem and he saw no fruit in the people of God, and so he cursed them. And in 70 AD, the Romans came and they tore the city down completely to fulfill the words of Jesus that not one stone would be left on top of another. But why did Jesus engage the fig tree? What was the whole point? Why did he approach the, first, the fig tree in the first place? And the text tells us that it's because Jesus was hungry and he was looking for figs. In John 19, Jesus is hanging on the cross and as he is dying, he says, I thirst. You see, because he was fully man in his humanity, the Son of God was subject to weakness and limitations and not only grew tired and weary, but also grew hungry and thirsty and needed food and water. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 5 tells us that Jesus is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses because he has been tempted in every way or every respect as we are yet without sin. Because Jesus didn't have a human father, Jesus wasn't in Adam. So he wasn't cursed by sin and bound by Satan the way that sinners are. He didn't have a sinful nature like us, even though he had a human nature. Rather, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the second Adam. He came to be the perfect representative who would rescue fallen humanity from their sin. This is why it's so important for us to affirm the full divinity or deity of Jesus. In Psalm chapter 49, verses 7 through 9, it says, Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. You see, Jesus had to be fully God 
so that he would never sin, so that he could satisfy God's justice, and so that he could overcome the grave. But he had to be fully man so that he could be our substitute and our mediator and our great high priest. Jesus didn't just take away our debt of sin at the cross, but he also credits to us his perfect record of obedience, exchanging our sins for his righteousness. Matthew chapter 3 tells us the story of Jesus approaching John the baptizer to be baptized. And John protests and says, you should be baptizing me, not me baptizing you. And Jesus responds by saying, let it be so now to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus was passing our test for us. He was filling in all the blanks. He was answering all the questions, solving all the problems. He said, let it be so now to fulfill all righteousness. I'm going to do everything that would please God. Everything that God expects of humanity, yet they continually fail to do, beginning with the first test taker, the primary test taker, Adam. And we're told that Jesus comes up out of the water and the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove and the voice of God thunders, this is my beloved son with whom or with him I am well pleased. God is saying Jesus is passing the test. Jesus is solving the problems correctly. Jesus is writing down the right answers. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 and 9 tells us that although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered being made per and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That, that text might seem kind of confusing because you're like, wait a minute. Jesus is God. God is perfect. How did Jesus, how was Jesus made perfect? But Jesus is also fully man. And so every temptation he overcomes, every law he obeys, every instance where he fulfills all righteousness and is pleasing to the Father, he is passing our test. He is showing himself to be not only fully God, but showing himself to be the perfect man so that he could present himself on the cross as the perfect substitute for sinful men and women. Jesus, the God-man, lived a perfectly obedient, sinless human life so that he could save us and so that we could be adopted as the children of God. This is who Jesus is. This is who Jesus claimed to be. And if Jesus isn't God then he's crazy. There's a famous C.S. Lewis quote. C.S. Lewis said, Jesus doesn't give you the option of accepting him as a good teacher or a moral person or an exemplary leader. Jesus is either a liar for telling people he was God if he wasn't, or he's a lunatic for thinking he was God if he wasn't, or he's Lord. 
He is God, and we must obey him. So the question for you today is, do you believe that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man? Do you believe about Jesus what Christians have always believed about Jesus, or do you believe something different? And if you believe what Jesus, what Christians have always believed about Jesus, is that belief head knowledge or is it heart knowledge? Is it information that you have to store away or is it, is it the rock on which your life is built and in which you have put all of your hope and your trust? Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you so much for the revelation of your word. And Father, we thank you so much that against heretics and against adversaries and against Satan and all his minions, you have preserved your truth down throughout the church so that today we can know this is what the Bible teaches and what Christians have believed. And I have a choice to accept it or reject it, but not alter it. And I don't have the burden of trying to figure it out and piece it together for myself. Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ is fully God. We thank you that he never ceased to be God. But we thank you, Father, that he condescended and he also became man so that he could be our substitute. And we thank you that even today, Jesus Christ is still fully man. That we have a man in heaven who is our high priest. That we have a man in heaven who is our older brother. And that we have a man in heaven who knows everything that we go through and loves us and cares for us enough that he laid down his life for us and that he still intercedes for us today. Father, I pray for everyone here this morning that this mystery of the incarnation, God become man, would, would be deeply rooted in our hearts, even though we cannot fully comprehend it and we cannot fully grasp it. Lord, I pray that you would protect us from error Protect us from, from twisting it or getting it wrong and believing things about you that are not true. And Father, make this the very bedrock of our faith and make this the thing on which we build our lives. That God became man so that we might become sons and daughters of God. Thank you for your great love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.